Greetings from America. Glad to be with you. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 1 today. Psalm 1. Psalm 1, verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of the sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of waters which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and what, in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. But they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, how it strengthens us, God. That not only have you called us to yourself, but you've made a way for us to grow in holiness, a way to finish the race that's set before us, and that is your word, God. It is bread. It is life. It is our sustenance, God. Pray that we now will submit to your spirit as it convicts us, as it encourages us, as it prepares us for the world to come. In your son's name, amen. amen. Well, I'm going to be going through Psalm 1, a short psalm. It's only six verses, and you think it'd be an easy one to briefly preach, uh, I haven't found it to be the case uh, because its brevity in no way diminishes the richness of its content. The psalm tackles a subject that should be on the mind of every man every day. It describes the two categories into which all people fall. And in his commentary, Matthew Henry puts it eloquently. He says, that division of the children of men into saints and sinners, righteous and unrighteous, the children of God and the children of the wicked one, as it is ancient ever since the struggle began between sin and grace, the seed of the woman the seed of the serpent, so it is lasting and will survive all other divisions and subdivisions of men into high and low, rich and poor, bond and free, for by this men's everlasting state will be determined, and the distinction will last as long as heaven and hell. But where do you fall? To which category do you belong? Are you the blessed man or a wicked man? This psalm is the key to answering those questions. Now, as I said, this is a rich psalm, and for that reason, I'll mostly focus on the first three verses. We'll be looking at the identities, activities, and the fecundity of the blessed man. So first, identity of the blessed man. It says, how blessed is man, the man? The word blessed here has two interrelated senses, or as A.W. Pink uh, put it, it has a double force. First, and most importantly, the word conveys that God's favor, uh, as opposed to his curse, is resting upon this man. We see this in connection between God's favor and being uh, blessed all throughout the Old Testament. For example, Noah finds uh, favor in God's eyes and is delivered from the wrath to come. After the flood waters subside, God blesses Noah and his sons. However, the best example is the one outlined by Paul in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 through 14. The apostle explains, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God it is evident for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of spirit through faith. Like Noah and Jacob before us, we are completely undeserving of God's favor. We haven't kept God's law. We're law breakers. We are sinners. Therefore, God's curse rightly rests on us. We deserve to be judged. God would be just to overwhelm us 
in the flood or slay us at the hand of an angry brother. But thanks be to God that his grace has been made available through the finished work of Christ. He hung on the cross, and in doing so, Christ became a curse for us in order that the blessing of Abraham might come to the world. What exactly is the blessing of Abraham? Listen again to the words of Paul in Galatians 3. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then, who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. The blessing of Abraham is that we receive God's grace by faith, not by works. In other words, our justification before God is by faith and faith alone. Our confidence comes not from our works, but from the finished work of Christ Jesus. This is what it means to be a blessed man. It means to have the grace of God resting on you. It means to be born again. So I want you to think of a Christian when I speak of the blessed man and of a non-Christian when I speak of a wicked man. Second, and consequently, the word blessed conveys that this man is a happy man. His happiness flows from being a recipient of God's grace. In Psalm 51, David asked that God would restore to me the joy of your salvation. There's a joy that comes from salvation. That is why elsewhere David writes, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Now, the world denies the goodness of God. They say that to be a Christian is to be unhappy and miserable. Sometimes we, we confirm that, don't we? They tell us in one way or another that self-love and self-indulgence is the key to happiness. That, these are lies. Those are lies. It's true that the way the world appears to lead, the way of the world appears to lead to happiness for a time. However, its happiness is fleeting. It's temporary. Listen to the words of the Apostle John. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The world is passing away, and also it's lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. This world is quickly passing away. The short-lived joys that it offers will pass with it. Everyone would do well to hear Pastor Spurgeon's warning. Do, does the world satisfy thee? Then, thee, or then thou hast thy reward and portion in this life. Make much of it, for thou shalt know no other joy. Right? For the Christian, this is as close as we get to hell. For the non-Christian, this is as close as they get to heaven. Conversely, the Christian should be strengthened, encouraged by the words of the psalmist written elsewhere. He declares, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Tell everyone, Christians should have a joyful swagger. We should have a confidence in this world, right? We should have joy. Joy is a powerful apologetic for the truth of the gospel. Now, that's who the blessed man is. What are his activities? Well, the first one says, who does not? So there are three negatives listed right away. These are activities from which the blessed man abstains, avoids, and even abhors. He has nothing to do with the counsel of the wicked, the path of the sinner, or the seat of the scorner. Now, there's a pressure in our culture to only speak using positives. That's something us Americans, Australians have in common. Our words are to always be words of affirmation. 
We are to speak things that build up negatives, we are told, only tear down. Let me give you two examples. Mayim Bialik is a PhD in neuroscience from UCLA, but she's mostly known as an actress that is on the Big Bang Theory. I don't know if that got over here from America. If it is, I, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I, did, I tried to stop it. Uh, in her spare time, she writes for several uh, uh, popular websites on the subject of gentle parenting. What is gentle parenting? Well, good question. Uh, Bialik gives a list of gentle parenting essentials in one of her most read articles. Here's uh, two that are very pertinent. Uh, not for instead of no. The word no is not very helpful, and using it will come back to haunt you. We've used the word no very rarely. Instead, coming up with a myriad of ways to indicate no and stop undesirable behaviors. We never baby-proofed our home except for power outlet covers. We, we don't have buttons on our power outlets. <laughs> uh, in a stern tone, which we say for only such occasions, in strong body language, <laughs> did the trick, in averting exploration of dangerous things. To this day, neither of my boys have ever said, shouted, or screamed no at us. And then she says, give a yes for every no, sometimes two. There are times when we need to and ought to say no to a child such as when a slice of brightly colored, fantastic-looking birthday cake is not vegan. Small people love to hear, yes, even if it's after a no. Um, even if it's really disappointing, no. Even if it's a really disappointing no, I found that providing a yes to something else can work wonders. So for the non-vegan cake, if the answer is no, the yes is to our own uh, treat waiting for us at home after the party. Poor kid. <laughs> Notice the goal is to get around the use of the negatives as much as possible. Bialik admits that in some cases you have to say no, but she frames it as if it should be a rarity. Now, of course, Bialik is a vegan, and that may lead you to believe that she's part of a fringe culture, at least back in the States. There's not very many of those. This example then would have very little application for the church, right? Well, let me give you something a little closer to home. Um, there's a Christian radio station back in the States called K-Love. Do you guys have K-Love here? No, okay. It's huge. It's gigantic. And um, it has over 12 million listeners each week in cities, including New York City, Chicago, Denver. These are big global cities. It's also the sixth most online stream station in the world. At least it was a couple years ago. Their slogan is, Positive Encouraging K-Love. Anyone that has worked in a corporate environment knows that a lot of thinking goes into coming up with a company's slogan. It's not something you just throw together willy-nilly. You do market research to determine your key demographic, you come up with several options, and then you run them by test groups to see which one elicits the desired reaction. It's, it's generally very calculated. I think Caleb, from a marketing perspective, got it right, from a marketing perspective. In 2013, Caleb won the Billy Graham Award for Excellence in Christian Communications and were vo voted Station of the Year. They know their audience. They know that most Christians, evangelicals in particular, are looking for positive and affirming content. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to tell you that it's wrong to listen to Caleb or something like that. Uh, I, I don't. I can't do it. Um, but that's not my point. Um, my point is simply that Christians are more and more buying into the lie that our religion is all about positivity. Right? However, we know that's not true. Scripture commends the use of negatives. You heard of the Ten Commandments, right? <laughs> People always say, the, like, the Bible's not a bunch of yeses and nos. Well, yeah, it is. Yeah, that's not all it is. 
But yeah, it, it absolutely is. The New Testament is full of negatives. Jesus says, go and sin no more. Paul says, do not be conformed to the ways of the world. It's a very simple application. We need to recapture the negatives of Scripture without losing grasps on the positive. Right? We need to exhort and instruct. We need to tell people to flee and pursue. We need to let them know uh, to do not and do. We need all of that. Only positives coddles Christians into fragility. Right? People that grow up in a church that only tells them positives, the moment that someone tells them the truth about themselves, tells them a no, gives them a criticism, they fall apart. That's exactly what's going to happen to that miserable child raised by that woman. Not going to be ready for the real world. But only negatives burden Christians into fragility. You've been into churches where their entire identity is in what they're not. That's not good either, right? Scripture is to turn from one thing. So, for example, uh, thou shalt not murder, when it comes to killing people, is pretty easy to obey. So far, I haven't murdered anyone. I've found it to be quite easy, right? But what is it really about? Well, we know that what it's about is preserving life. That's the positive command. It uses the negative to get your attention, but what's commending is the protection of life, propagating of life. And so that's where we have to show both sides of the law. Metal is shaped and strengthened both by the fire and the water. Strength comes when uh, we turn from and then turn to. Now, Let's consider these particulars or the particulars of these activities that the blessed man avoids. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of the sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers. First, the blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. That is, according to the counsel and advice of those who hate God's work. John Calvin, he says, the first step to living well is to renounce the company of the ungodly. Otherwise, it is sure to infect us with its own pollution. Joseph is a good example of someone that rejected the counsel of the ungodly. Potiphar's wife pursued him. She persuaded Joseph to come lie with her. Genesis 39.10 says, as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Joseph closed not only his ears but his heart to her counsel. Do you remember what the objection was Joseph gave to the wife of Potiphar? He said, how then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Joseph's delight was in pleasing God. Psalm 24 says, Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Here's the question I'll put to you. Who are your counselors? Where do you go to get advice? Or magazines, websites, you know, people you fall in line, what friends you rely on for counsel? Do they fear God? Are they godly counselors? Don't listen to them any longer if they're ungodly. And above all, make sure your chief counselor is scripture. Second, the blessed man does not stand in the path of sinners. That is, he doesn't fall in an ungodly course of life. Proverbs 4, 14 through 19 instructs us on why we should avoid the pathway of the sinner. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not proceed in the way of the evil man. Avoid it. Do not pass by it. Turn away from it. Pass on, for they cannot sleep unless they do evil. And they are robbed of sleep unless they make someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness, and they drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. The way of the wicked is like darkness, and they do not know what they stumble over. 
I can't tell you how many men I've known that have had evil schemes that for a time made them very wealthy, but eventually led to their undoing. They thought that they were in control. They thought that they wouldn't reap what they had sown. They were wrong, and they all will eventually be wrong. God is not mocked. If you walk in darkness, you will stumble. Matthew Henry again sums it up well. The ways of carelessness, of worldliness, of sensuality seem right to those who walk in them. But self-deceivers prove self-destroyers. The path of the sinner leads to misery and destruction. And I want to make a quick note here, lest the point be taken the wrong way. This doesn't mean that we are totally to avoid non-Christians. In 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10, Paul makes that clear. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of, the, of this world or with the covetous or the swindlers or the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. Avoiding immoral people is an impossibility. It, it also doesn't mean that it's wrong to have a certain level of friendship with non-Christians. Our Lord shared meals with unrepentant sinners. I think of Whitfield's relationship with Benjamin Franklin, one of our founding fathers. And Benjamin Franklin was not a moral man. Oh. Friendship uh, with the non-Christian is ultimately an issue of gravitational pull. Are you pulling them into orbit around God, or are they pulling you into orbit around the world? No matter what, you must not align yourself with their orbit, with their path. Third, the blessed man does not sit in the seat of the scoffer. There's a progression in here that finds its fulfillment in this final phrase. Walking in the counsel of the ungodly leads to standing in their path, which culminates in sitting in the scoffer's chair. What does it mean uh, to sit in the scoffer's seat? To scoff means to speak to someone or about something in a scornfully derisive or mocking way. Scoffers are those that openly rebel against God's law. They mock God's holiness. Matthew Henry explains that the seat of the scoffer belongs to those that are secure in their wickedness and please themselves with searedness of their own conscience. This psalm is showing us how little by little men are induced to turn from the right path. The blessed man doesn't sit in the seat because he knows that listening and associating with the wicked will in due time lead to thinking and acting like the wicked. He knows that big sins have small beginnings. Brethren, do not make peace with small sins. They never stay small. They always grow. Lawlessness leads to more lawlessness. Confess your sins to God and to each other often. Do not let the counsel of the ungodly establish a beachhead in your heart. Goes on to say, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. In his law, he meditates day and night. The blessed man's activities aren't only defined by what he avoids. The psalmist tells us that the blessed man delights in the law of the Lord. Now, earlier I quoted Galatians 3, where it says we are free from the law, right? Wrong. It actually said that we are free from the curse of the law. There are aspects of the law that have been abrogated in Christ, but the moral law of God will never pass away. There's three uses of the law of God. Before I define them, I must admit that in my explanation, I'm drawing heavily from an excellent article by R.C. Sproul on the subject. I recommend you just Google R.C. Sproul and the three uses of the law for some good Sabbath day reading later today. The first use of the law is to be a mirror that reflects the perfect righteousness of God and in doing so, illuminates mankind's sinfulness. 
As Augustine wrote, the law bids us, as we try to fulfill its requirements and become wearied in our weakness under it, to know how to ask uh, for the help of grace. So it is here that the law acts as a tutor that drives us to Christ. It's the main way we talk about it. The second use of the law is the restraining of evil. It is true that the law has no power to change man's hearts. However, John Calvin explains it can serve to protect the righteous from the unjust by means of its fearful denunciations and the consequent dread of punishment to curb those who, unless forced, have no regard for the rectitude or for rectitude and justice. So the law's restraining influence does allow for a limited measure of justice until final judgment. So like speed, speed limits make you slow down even if you don't really care. Just by seeing them, you tap the brake a little bit. The third use of the law is to reveal what is pleasing to God. This is the use that we are most concerned with this morning. A born-again child of God, or as a born-again child of God, the law enlightens us to what is pleasing to our Father. The larger catechism says the moral law is of special use to the regenerate because it shows, among other things, how they ought to take their greater care to conform themselves thereunto as the rule of their obedience. Every good son delights in the things that his father delights in, whether they be good or evil. In this case, when I mean good son, I mean son that looks up to his father. Uh, in this case, God's children delight in law because God himself delights in it. Sproul says, this is the highest function of the law, to serve as an instrument for the people of God to give him honor and glory. Now, it has once again become fashionable to reject the third use of the law as if it was some form of legalism. I don't have enough time to address that uh, subject in a way that would be entirely helpful. I will say two things very quickly. First, that assertion is just not true. Second, I would recommend Mark Jones' uh, excellent book, Antinomianism, Reformed Theology's Unwelcome Guests. And Pastor Jones' book is very helpful in understanding the biblical doctrine of God's law, and you do well to give it a read. It's very readable uh, and helpful. Antinomianism is something that's kind of a specter that haunts Reformed churches. As we try to emphasize the gospel, we can accidentally over, uh, kind of overcorrect and downplay the, the beauty of a right understanding of the law. Anyhow, returning to the passage, it's crucial that you focus on the word delight. The law here isn't a source of drudgery for the blessed man. No, rather, the law is a source of happiness and satisfaction. We all have delighted in a possession. When I was a kid, I had a Mickey Mantle rookie card. Mickey Mantle was like a really big deal in baseball. I'd just take it out and stare at it and behold its grandeur, show all my friends the glory of a piece of cardboard with a picture of an old Yankee on it. It was my delight. Listen to these verses from the Psalms. Psalm 111.2, great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Psalm 112.1, praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Psalm 119.16, I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Psalm 119.47, I shall delight in your commandment or commandments which I love. It's clear that our delight should be in the law of the Lord. Like the blessed man, we should meditate on God's law day and night. This idea isn't just found in the Psalms. It's all over the Bible. Here's just a few examples from the New Testament. In Matthew 4.4, our Lord says, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out the mouth of God. And then in 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says, All scripture is inspired by God 
and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training and righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. First Peter 2, verses 2 through 3 tells us, like newborn babies, we should long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it we may grow in respect to salvation if we have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Scripture is our spiritual food. It is a source of our strength. It grows us, it trains us, it equips us. We would be foolish not to delight in it through meditation. We should be soaking in God's word. Yes, life can be busy and crazy. It can, it's easy to be distracted by our temporal concerns. Everyone feels that pressure. I know I do. But you mustn't neglect the study of the scriptures. You must find a way. I highly recommend a good Bible in a year reading plan. Here's one way to do it. Four chapters a day will get you through the Bible in a year. And that's if you miss like about a month and a half. Like the beginning of every year, I say, if you start today, you'll still finish the Bible, you know, in a year. It's just four chapters. Now, Psalm 119, I hope it falls on a Saturday, but, um, <clears throat> but that's all it takes. But there's other ones that you can follow. Just find one. Just start somewhere. Even a single chapter a day will be an immense spiritual benefit to you. Feed the fire of faith. The more scripture you read, the more scripture you'll want to read. Lastly, the fecundity of the blessed man. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit, its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. The word fecundity refers to the capacity of abundant production or the quality of producing fruit. Isn't that a good word to sum up the life of the blessed man? He leads a productive and fruitful life. Fruitfulness is what God desires from us. In John 15, 16, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Please note that the tree was planted by the streams of water. Trees don't just plant themselves. The word here suggests that someone put it by the stream. Someone was cultivating that tree to be fruitful. In the same way, we take comfort that God called you and appointed you that you'd go and bear fruit. Listen to these familiar verses from Ephesians 2. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. The blessed life starts with God. He graciously gives you faith to believe. He opens your eyes to see. He gives you a new heart in which he writes his law on. That new heart begins to delight in the law and produce the fruit of the Spirit. This is the life of a Christian. John 10.10 says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Praise God. In conclusion, the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Those first five words of this uh, verse four are incredibly powerful. Think of all that's been said about the blessed man. His life is truly the good life. He has the favor of God, and that favor has transformed him into a fruitful tree that will nev never, ever wither. The wicked are not so. They know nothing of the good life. 
The wicked, both in character and condition, are the exact opposite of the righteous. Calvin says the sum and substance of the whole is that they are blessed who apply their hearts to the pursuit of heavenly wisdom, whereas the profane despisers of God, although for a time they may reckon themselves happy, shall at length have a most miserable end. The closest a wicked man will ever get to enjoying the pleasures of heaven is in the corrupt and transient pleasures of this world. How often do you commit a sin and right after you do it, immediately regret it? You thought that would bring you some sort of pleasure. You're even more empty afterwards. That's all these people know. It's a very sad and pathetic thing. He has chosen, they have chosen, the temporary over the eternal. The things he brags about now will be his everlasting shame. The wicked man has lived a useless life. In this way, he is like the chaff that has no value to, to a farmer. The farmer desires fruit, and the wicked has only the works of the flesh to offer. In Luke 3, 9, Jesus said, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, the wicked will have no defense on the day of judgment. He will not be able to stand when the charges are read against him by God. He's had every chance needed to be washed in the blood and be counted among the congregation of the redeemed. But he chose to love what God hates. And now he will perish in everlasting fire. Brothers, the wicked live a miserable life that only ends in destruction. Do not covet it. Do not go down that path. We know God. We have him as father. His way is the only way that leads to life. The only good life is the life submitted to our Savior. Let's take our marching orders from Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have called us out of the world, out of darkness, out of sin, out of the preview of hell, into your family. Now we walk in the light. We're no longer lost. We're found. Now in the fellowship of your saints, in the sacraments, in the word preached, we have a preview of heaven. Thank you, Lord, that this world is not our home, and someday it will be cleansed with fire, but we won't perish with it, God. We will be with you forever and ever. We thank you for Jesus who's blazed the path forward for us. We thank you for the spirit that's been given to us that the work that you started in us will be finished, God. You are so faithful to complete it. Help us to love your law and hate sin. Help us to stay close. Thank you for your word. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.